and welcome back to Box Popcast, the weekly pseudo-acumen roundtable of pop culture analysis with drinking and swearing. My name is Christopher Maverick, but you can call me Mav, and I am once again here with my co-hosts, Katya and Wayne. How's it going, guys? Mav. Oregon is on fire, but not in the place where I'm at, so that's nice. That's oh, good. Congratulations. Uh, so I mean, silver lining, I guess. Yeah. Apparently, feel- although the smoke apparently has made it to the East Coast. Yes. Yeah. So, my yeah, from what I've seen, enough of the West Coast is on fire that like they are experiencing it yeah. all the way on the other. Yeah, it's it's crazy. But you know, so it's also the smoke is blowing away from where I live, so that's nice. I oh, guess. Sorry, <laughs> I, mean, I mean, we've got haze in Utah, so <laughs> yeah, we had haze here in Pittsburgh from Canadian forest fires. So yeah, we should also point out. So the voice you didn't recognize—that's also Andrew, Andrew Dorowski, pr- producer Andrew, um, as he calls himself on, of the protagonist podcast. As, as um, Joe calls me, I yeah. <laughs> well, you you've been here enough times that I, I think um, you, you're you're very much in the you know you don't have to wait to be in, in introduced guest phase <laughs> any, anymore. So so Just Andrew's here joining us. Flowchart that determines that status. Um, it's a very important. <laughs> there's a complicated series. ranking system. Yeah, yeah. yeah what, 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 the point what, system. There's modifiers. You know. What, what <laughs> happens if if you're a new guest? You're just too uncomfortable to speak until one of us address you. But once you've been here for a while, you, you just barge in. So you know it's fine. <laughs> well, I mean, you've been on the sh- you, you've spoken on the show for more than four minutes and realized that yeah, <laughs> we are <laughs> yes. This is, the, just, this is just the show. Talking over each yeah. other is the show. <laughs> It is. is there is there like a level of sitcom guest where when they walk in the door, someone doesn't have to say their name? Like they've been a, a frequent enough guest that they don't need the introduction? That's what, host. That's what happened to Hannah. We need to have that sitcom cheer whenever our guests come on. Oh. You, 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 need, you need to put that in. Yeah, I guess I can. I, uh, well, let's see. If I thought about it, I just edited it in now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I think I'm going to leave myself saying that. Future Mav. Future Mav follows current Mav's direction. I feel like I feel like future Mav, much like current Mav, does not like be told what to do. So I, you know, I, I will watch I will listen with anticipation to see whether or not future Mav will listen. Does it count as telling myself what to do when it's me telling myself? I don't know. Maybe it does. Yeah, you're, maybe you'll that. be a different person like five days from now when you're yeah. dead. So um, anyway, I, I, it's kind of weird. This is the second show in a row, I think. I think um, I'm not sure because I, I, I sometimes lose track of when we record versus when episodes come out. But last week's show, I think last week's show um, was the alcohol show, which was, you know, our, one of our regular normal guests. Um, that was Marone Langsner. He, he proposed that one. And he's like, you guys should do a show on this. And I was like, well, why don't you come on and do a show on this? <laughs> and, 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 it, and it was like, sure. And, you know, he got it. You know, he got some guests. There. So so this is another one of those weeks where, you know, we've got like some topics. And I, I randomly get a text message from Andrew one day saying, you know, this isn't right for my show, but it's perfect for your show. You guys should do this. And I was like, yeah, yeah, you should. And he, and he goes, well, I'd like to be on. And I was like, oh, you're going to be on if you if we're doing this. <laughs> so, <laughs> you, you, you are kind of my my go to approach is like, you guys um, should do this thing and invite me on. I think it might be like my little brother syndrome. Where it's like, uh, like, but can I be included since oh, it yeah. wasn't since it was my idea? Can I also do it? 
we we now have we now have five hosts of the show and you know one, one of the one of the big ways that the most recent two who aren't the, the two who aren't here the three of us were here at the beginning the two the two newer ones is like oh no no you've had too many ideas you you have to be you have to do work now <laughs> that's how both Hannah and Monica got you're officially on staff yep <laughs> so anyway because um, there are no yeah. reports in this business <laughs> yeah the, yes the the highly um yeah the high, the highly, um, you know, innovative and crazy, you know, h- high profile world of internet podcasting. Yeah, it's like it's like it's like freemium gaming, but in reverse. In, internet podcasting on the academic circuit, you know, yeah, so classic. Which Andrew, you're familiar with, but um, anyway, anyway, what are we talking yeah, about? What today? are we talking about? It's your idea because this is actually based on based on one of your uh, one of your two other shows, but also more so. Yeah, so the the like main crux of the idea is something that came up as uh, my wife Kestra and I who I think Kestra has been on here before yes Kestra's only come on um, once like well she was a guest once and I believe there's been like once or twice where we've done like game shows and you and and she has laughed at you derisively from the background but so we're working on our movies by minutes podcast where we dissect Disney movies one minute at a time and we're about to do 101 Dalmatians and so we've been doing a bunch of research for it and there is a particular sequence that kind of like sparked this idea i mean a a little bit of like the entire second half of the film has got me thinking about like holocaust narratives i was like okay you can read the dalmatians hiding from cruella vil and her her henchmen and trying to sneak through the countryside you can you can look at all that and see kind of like the shadows of holocaust literature like like mouse or something where it's like okay they're hiding the 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 Nazis are looking for um you know their lives are in danger and so you can see that kind of narrative structure and then there's a sequence there's a specific sequence in there where and Kestra is the one who's done like most of the research she's listened to the other Disney podcasts talk about this movie she's read the blogs and everything and a lot of them are like oh yeah like 101 Dalmatians is is pretty great except for that blackface sequence and I was like she mentioned that to me I was like what blackface sequence are they talking about the part where they're hiding from Cruella so they get covered in soot so they can pass as Labradors is that blackface and I like I was suddenly like confronted with the idea of this other reading that in my mind like that sequence in particular like Cruella's looking through the window and trying to spot them and like that's like that's like Anne Frank in the walls and Nazis are in the house kind of stuff and and then there's this like cultural context of like, yeah. And then this blackface sequence really ruins my viewing of this movie. <laughs> I was like, I didn't think of that as blackface at all, but I like, I guess it totally is mm-hmm. in a way like it's no yeah. Like they're getting covered in, in set and they're passing as different dogs. So like, it's not performative blackface, but like, okay, functionally. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so originally I had like messaged Mav to, to talk about that. And so Mav is, is eventually going to be our guest for that because I know Mav can talk about it in a way that's just not, it's, it's not just, blackface this movie's bad this is evil and and terrible now mav can like discuss blackface nuance. with nuance yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mav, mav is capable of that um as are people on this show and so it ultimately got me thinking about different things and and someone had mentioned like underground railroad i was like oh i got holocaust but i could see how someone would get underground railroad for the dalmatians escaping and so long story short the idea is there's multiple readings of a lot of things in media, right? A lot of different texts you can say, oh, I see this kind of motif or that kind of motif and people can have different readings and the motif is like the text is the same. So Mm -hmm. 
how do you parse validity of readings or contradictory readings or interpretations? And how do you compare that to intention and meaning? But also sometimes the author doesn't really have any intention or meaning towards a certain reading. And that would mean that all the readings are more or less valid. So here's why I'm excited about this. <laughs> this is this is um this is such a nerdy thing. When, when Andrew proposed this, I was just like, oh, my God, we're going to be able to do a structuralism formalism episode. We're going to be this is going to be so nerdy and we're going to disguise like super geeky grad school um you know homework shit as like you know a fun discussion of pop culture but stick with us folks because i think because i think this is going to be really interesting um your argument is sort of the the argument of old world literary critics the matthew arnold's of the world for a name just if you need one if you want to impress people at weird literary parties that you don't go to versus <laughs> new criticism um and frankfurt school post walter benjamin you know new stuff this is a, this is an argument that's happened in the world of literary criticism as, you know, what is the nature of the critic? That is an argument with no official answer over like the last 150, 200 years, but that I think is an amazing thing to discuss. And I have my take on it. I expect everyone here, just because you're my friends, are going to have very similar takes to me, but I do think it's still worth discussing. Yeah, I think it is really interesting because it's like, in a, in a way, this question is sort of like, why, why, why do we humanities? Yes. Because <laughs> no, because when I was like thinking about this before the before the episode, it's like this is the fundamental question of like like okay, if you've ever been in a freshman writing course in the humanities taught by somebody who teaches culture of any mm -hmm. time period, basically, you will inevitably get the question of like the, somebody will show up to your office hours and be like. Well, how do I know if I'm right? Yes. And it's like, mm -hmm. we you need go. to talk about what right means in, in when you're talking about culture because, and what evidence means when we talk about culture. And actually, I've been wanting to talk about evidence in general for, mm -hmm. but I think that's another episode. But um, because, and I always tell my students, this is somewhat of a simplification, but I think it's a good starting point. There are no wrong readings. There are only better readings that are more grounded in evidence. Mm -hmm. Ooh, wow, that's ni that's nicer. Because because yeah, I'd be the asshole going, how do you know when you're right? <laughs> which which <laughs> I, I would quibble. I would say that there are. I would say there are wrong readings, but some some readings are more right than others. And you know, yeah. and there's there's yeah. very yeah. levels. Yeah. Yeah. It boils down to you. Know, do you present evidence for your reading? Yes. Is if you can't show me textual evidence and like and also like to me, it's a, it's not just textual evidence and interpretation. You also need to ground it. I'm, you know, I was trained by historicists. Yes. Like, mm -hmm. you have to ground your interpretation of the text in something outside of the text, whether that is, here are other literary movements that are related, or here's what was historically going in that period. Because I think, and I think that's also kind of what separates the kind of analysis you do in undergrad mm -hmm. to the kind of things you do as a graduate student and then as a professor, because when you're an undergrad, and like, this is the way we teach it, because like, when you're learning how to do this kind of analysis, we need to like, like, like we, we focus, like, do your interpretation interpretation, figure out an original argument. And like, we are usually focused on, can you make an argument? Mm -hmm. And there's evidence and things like that. But like, once you've mastered the basics of getting an argument, then you can get to the nuances of like, okay, this is, this is the kind of evidence that will adequately support this argument. This is how we evaluate evidence on a much more detailed level, which like, Yes, you get some of that as an undergrad. Like we ask you to do research papers and things like that, but there's a level of rigor yeah. Um, yeah. that I think most people like. Okay, this is a bit of a tangent, and sorry for going off on this, but like 
I think this is one of the things I, I have about when I see lay people reading peer-reviewed research. Not that I'm criticizing anyone for doing that at all. I think it's God great bless you if you want to try. Yeah, <laughs> it's great. I mean, sometimes I hate it. So like, bless you. And it's part of my job. Yes. But, uh, but I think that's also part of the thing where it's like, if reading peer-reviewed research is very different, if you are somebody who has been trained how to do this, and I don't mean that in a like, gatekeeping way, it's more of like, I mean, it's kind of gatekeeping by its nature. But um, it's basically like, th- there's, there's a level of how to evaluate evidence and how to evaluate argument that like most people don't don't participate in because for most people this is not part of their daily lives it is part of our daily lives yeah it's literally anyway it's, that was my soapbox moment of the day well, it's, it's it's a it's it's this weird thing that happens that um that becomes i mean it's an arrogant answer and but it's but well, it's the true answer because because i i i end up in conversations um because of the way i approach um I can just over. because of the way i approach scholarship um, the way I approach criticism. Um, I have, I've said before on this show, and I've said this very much in my professional academic career, that I do not like the old style of criticism, the formalist school. I, I mentioned Matthew Arnold at the beginning. Matthew Arnold believed that the function of the critic was the critic's job was to decide value. Um, the critic would go, this is the true literature. This is not the true literature. It's how you end up with things like canon. It's how you end up with, no, what we have decided this is what will will be valuable it's where you have like academies from academy and of motion picture arts and scientists and it's the high culture versus local culture right. thing it's brought into yeah, that. Really how high culture is determined right. right which i largely think is bullshit if you haven't heard if you've, if you've heard no. the show before if you haven't figured that out <laughs> yeah that's <laughs> map's take on that argument right. Right. um that said where i think there is truth to that is what katya is saying if you like i don't think you have to like ha- i don't think my my opinions are necessarily better than anybody else's, but they're more studied. And I know it seems like I might think that they're better because of just the way I talk. It might sound e- egotistical. I've said this many times online when somebody's arguing with me about somebody will say, well, you're wrong. And I'll say, I'm not wrong. And they're like, how do you know? And I'm like, because I do this for a living. It's literally all I do all day. And, and it's weird because it's not very obvious. Like, I think people think that all I do is read comic books and I don't. And in fact, that's very little of what I do, right? Mostly what I'm doing is reading cultural theory and psychology and, and we very, we vary the way um, the way we approach things is varies as academics so like for instance Katya for looks at a lot more history than I do I look at a lot of uh, a lot of psychology and a lot more um, philosophy and cultural uh, cultural theory Hannah looks at lots of philosophy <laughs> like that's just that's her approach to doing to, to more doing about things than I will ever know about yeah, then I yeah she's forgotten way more than I want to know. Right. Like it, it's and not that I, and I enjoy that sort of thing. And it's, there's different approaches. Um, Wayne, Wayne looks at things like I've read Wayne's papers. It's almost always a young and psycho- psychological viewpoint. That's just what you do. It's the way you mm-hmm. see the world. Um, whereas I'm more likely to, you know, how can I mix, how can I mix psycho- psychoanalysis with Marxism? That's just my approach to doing things. Um, and it's fine, but like we know how to do that. So what ends up happening is we end up talking in this weird, um, we always say pseudo-academic on this show because we end up talking in this weird academic shorthand that the five of us um, plus our guests tend to sort of backfilter into popular culture talk in a way that um, in a way that is not the same as somebody who just says I like Marvel movies because I like them or this is this is bad and, and if you th- this is good and this is bad and if you don't think so you're stupid like there's more nuance in our discussion and 
that I think is the value of criticism. We also what? We we also often disagree, and I think like what you're describing the fact about different approaches. That's what like this this idea of like there are different there are different levels of of like that's what makes different readings possible. Yes. the way that like both Hannah and I talk about, you know, different kinds of games. We both talk about games and game studies and we have an episode coming up actually talking about different approaches to game studies and kind mm-hmm. of like history of that. But uh, I can produce a reading based on historicism of, of a game. Hannah can produce a reading reading of the same game or this, even the same segment of a game based on philosophy, more based on philosophy. We can come mm-hmm. to like radically different co- conclusions, but if we're able to ground our arguments in evidence, mm-hmm. both the text and from ex- like secondary sources, our arguments are equally valid. And, it, mm-hmm. and it, like, that's what you're getting at is it's like in, in internet speak, we're not used. And I do this all the time on the internet too. It's like when, I, when I'm having an argument with somebody on Twitter, which I rarely do anymore, but like when I used to do that, it's a different kind of argument. Mm-hmm. I'm not making a high academic argument where I'm like making sure to ground myself on evidence, which actually, okay, I have a question about this. Mm-hmm. Cause I think one of the challenges this is a little bit off topic, but I think one of the challenges of like alternate readings and like what is a credible argument is when you're talking with people who don't speak the kind of like academic shorthand that Matt's talking about. Because yeah. I've, you know, I've, I've been in arguments with people and they're like, well, cite your sources, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, I can't cite my sources because I am the source. Because there's a certain yeah. point where it's like, where you, have to be, you have an expertise. Of seven years of reading for you. Yeah, and that's, that's the thing with comics. That. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, I, and I think, okay, backing up here for a second, just for, you know, while we're talking about the idea of readings, maybe we need to define exactly what's a reading? what we mean by that. Please um, do. Be, before we get too deep, because I mean we're we're already in kind of some academic weeds, which we tend to do, which is fine. Mm-hmm. But I, but Indeed. I think uh, just you know, giving a basic idea of what we mean by that, because I I know in conversations with lots of people who don't do this, this is a weird idea. Like you know, <laughs> people read something and then here's their interpretation of, it and that's what it is. And the mm-hmm. idea that you and I can both read this thing and come away with a with two very different yet equally valid interpretations of what it is that's a weird concept to people so i, I think maybe I think, I think i've got an example go okay. for it um so this is like the earliest i can remember from when i was a teenager like this example and and it's weird because so my brother john guest of the show um yes is our first guest. One, of the, one of the reasons that I thought of this because he was like, well, you can look at it as as Holocaust and and uh, Underground Railroad and it can be both. Right. You can you can read it both ways and that's fine. And you just, you know, which way do you want to talk about it? But my early memory is from John disagreeing with other siblings about (laughs) a reading of something, which I assume he's just outgrown this or maybe I'm remembering it more intensely. But it was. He did comment on the blog that he does not recall this this conversation. So he he, he did specifically <laughs> um, say that. But, but um, it was do, do two different people have a different reading of a historical event? <laughs> Oh, I, know, I know John well. I know John well enough to believe that this conversation did happen. So go ahead. <laughs> um, and I don't, I don't remember exactly which sibling. So it could have been him and and, and Joe also a guest of the show. Um, but it was at the end of the Harry Potter series. So spoilers for Harry Potter. But Harry <laughs> has like a death and resurrection sequence, and there was a disagreement in the house about whether that was Christ motif or Phoenix motif. Oh. I don't remember who was arguing for which side, but functionally, it really doesn't matter because it's definitely like simultaneous both and neither kind of thing but it's like and like if you want to take one or the other like cool one is probably like you can't say it's like no it's not christ motif it's definitely phoenix motif and if you read it as a christ motif you're wrong it's like 
It's a resurrection. It's a it's it's a Christ motif. It's a resurrection. It's a Phoenix motif, right? Like it's That's both. Those are yeah. I mean, it's like yeah, one, like one could argue kind of the same. All stories are uh, one one could argue that all Christian re- resurrections are Phoenix motifs and vice versa. Yeah, yeah. one could make that argument. But but you but you look at them in different ways, and I think that's what's that's what's fascinating. It I I think we should yeah use, it, it um, does it does give you a different vibe if you're like oh well mm-hmm. if I read it as Christ motif then I look at some of the other elements of the story in this way, or if I read it as Phoenix motif I look at some of the things this way. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean the, the 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 way you go into it, I mean you're the the thing that grounds your reading changes yeah. your interpretation of all of it. Right. And I think with academics in particular, or, or literary academics and film, you know, film criticism, literary criticism, the stuff that we do on this show, mostly the stuff that, um, that Andrew does on both of his shows, I think that this becomes, you know, this is the job, right? So, so we do it more often. Um, but I, I do think this happens from non academics as well on, on, on a micro level of, Absolutely. You know, if if you've ever been to a comic book store and you see somebody arguing, um, no, Batman should be able to beat Superman. No, Superman should be able to beat Batman. You're doing that right there. There's no yeah. wrong or right answer. The right answer is who the fuck's writing the book and he will decide. You know, like if I write the book mm-hmm. Batman versus Superman, I, I'll pick a winner and that person will win. And there is no wrong or right answer because I'm writing Batman Superman. But like usually when these arguments come down, because I've watched people have so much investment in this argument. Argument, right oh yeah but like usually when you're doing this argument you're like well if you think about action comics number 647 when you know like people will sit there and they'll do they I, will I, cite I, their sources I, 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 I would bum people out they would come in with that question at the store they, they would come in and just be like so who would win in a fight and my standard answer was well what does the story require yeah <laughs> and they would just kind of stare at me was your goal to argue or was your goal to like come to no, some my, sort of Solution. Yeah, my goal was primarily to shut them up. Uh, right. <laughs> right, right, right. But, but I mean, I mean, their goal was to argue with somebody. Yeah, oh, and yeah, say, yeah, no, yeah, you're very wrong. Much so. Very much. You so. know, yes, and, yes. And you're like very much well, so. Here's a resolution to to that dynamic. Yeah, that's very a, much like a really good example, though, because because yeah. I think one of the things that also because I've been thinking while we're talking about this, I've been thinking about if there's a difference between interpretation and a reading. Mm-hmm. But I think also what Wayne's getting at goes back to the question of like the, like better and worse readings because that person like okay another. I feel like I keep going back to like writing one on one things, but you know, <laughs> reference. But like one of the things I always got from my teachers and I absolutely always like talk to my students about is like the so what who cares thing. Mm-hmm. Because and I think like Wayne's example of like a comic book guy and like what the story requires is absolutely right because it's like there is a certain point where like there are practical realities of crafting a narrative and whatever media media mm. like in order to tell certain kinds of stories. So you can make all of these kinds of arguments about like you know is X superhero more, like more powerful than Y superhero, but it's like why is does that matter if it's just a functional aspect of telling a story? It's like well then there's no conversation to be had if yeah, it, there's. It, 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 it only matters if you're playing hero clicks. Yeah. <laughs> Which is not like I, I, I'm 100% positive slash no for a fact that there are people who find that argument very compelling. I'm not one of them. Um, <laughs> and that's fine. But like there's, nothing, like, there's nothing wrong with finding that argument compelling. But like, mm-hmm. I think that there, I mean, I, I think I can probably speak with some accuracy for this particular group. Like we are more interested in much more like philosophically yeah. abstract, bizarre questions than yes. But I think, but, but like, I, like to, to, I think with Matt's point about like people do this on a micro scale a lot is like, this is, and we've said this on the show many times before, 
this is part of the, the lineage of cultural studies as a field. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's where the we resolve nothing at the end always comes from. I and mean, we always say that at right. the end of the joke. That's why we know we can't. We, we never will. Like, I have to joke that some of the best writing about video games comes from game wikis and Reddit. And oh, I'm yes. entirely facetious about this because to be like, as a field, game studies is a little squishy baby. Um, <laughs> it's been going on for decades, but in the in the history of like academic fields, it is a yeah. little squishy baby. Um, so it's comics. And like, we depend a lot on the work of Probably. fan communities, mm-hmm, especially mm-hmm. when you're talking about like preservation of older materials and archives. Like, I mean, this Hell, is all yeah. true of sci-fi pulps. This, mm-hmm. The study of early science fiction would not exist without a bunch of very dedicated nerds thinking mm-hmm. about stuff. Yep. Like, which is also why, like, some of the stuff I said earlier about gatekeeping, I mean, this is why also, like, that gatekeeping isn't really gatekeeping, because, like, you can absolutely produce amazing argument, amazing scholarship, and there are people that do this without ever having formal training as an academic. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. actually, I would argue that people who do it well, a lot of times their arguments are more interesting. Well, so super, for superhero comics in particular, comics in general, but for well, American comics in general, I should qualify that. France was always very good about like realizing the cultural relevance of, of comics and to a lesser extent, Japan always has been. America, not so much. And particularly with superhero stuff and, you know, what we now consider geek, um, geek stuff, there's a gap of literary criticism in American superhero studies that goes from about 1957 to about 1979, 80, where literally there are no articles written academically there's nothing i know i had to do i had to do like comps which are you know like it's a part of getting a phd is doing this part where you have to do these exams which are you have to read everything um that was written in the field and i got to this 20 year period where no one published anything it was just like literally there were zero um there's like one essay by umberto echo and then nothing for like a couple of decades but like if you turn over to um what's being written in zines what's being written in the popular no it wasn't really popular but the comic book the comic book community community the comic con community there's mm-hmm. all kinds of stuff like and so stuff, I mean, self-published stuff yeah that's tons published stuff. um you know uh, yeah what, what's the thing um for a dime um all um all in color for a dime all in color for a dime like things like that are being written in this period where the academy you know and the official things is is, is is ignoring it so you end up with you end up with very very interesting readings of literary text but from people who are not formally trained and i think are just as interesting so like when i say when i say something you know, the, you know i, I know because this is my job i try to be careful when i say that like when i say it sometimes i'm you know i'm, I'm being cocky but also when i say it it's usually because i really mean it as opposed to i i try not to pull that card when it's just someone's reading if someone's right. quoting if someone's quoting um, a logical fact wrong like if someone's saying something that is fundamentally wrong about someone else's theory i'll correct it you know or or you know how how does some how does some psychoanalysis thing work i can correct that but if if you're just talking about whether you like something or what something means to you then you have your as long as you have evidence for it to where it means something valid to you that's fine and i 
think it's actually the most interesting part of what we do is looking at multiple readings. I don't care if, you, if people disagree with me. I like seeing, well, how did you get there? Because this is fascinating. Mm-hmm. As a, for instance, um, as we record this, we are a week out past um, the the conclusion of the television series Loki, um, which I'm sure a lot of our, our fans liked um, or, or watched because this is, this is, I know our audience, right? And I watched it and I enjoyed it. And as I said in the blog, but also on, on Facebook, I hated uh, the final episode of the season. I really, really hated it. I think I said it was my least favorite episode of anything MCU other than the Inhumans TV show. Like I, I hated everything about that final episode. Um, but what I really did enjoy in particular is um, I, I, I loved the analyses of um, two friends of the show, uh, Brian at Church of the Geek and TK at There Was an Idea. They both did retrospectives on it, and I loved listening to their takes on it and them explain why they loved it. I disagree with them. They're friends of mine. I disagree, but I enjoyed listening to um, to those two podcasts talk about their reasons for liking Loki and their analysis of why they liked it more than I enjoyed the show. So I think there's a lot of geeky fun. I mean, like if you admit it, if you have if you're having the Batman versus Superman argument, having the Batman versus Superman argument is fun. And it's not as fun if somebody says Superman because he can fly. That's boring, right? (laughs) It becomes interesting when somebody has a good take, right? And and yeah, to to go back to my example earlier it's not like i have never participated in those conversations you know <laughs> yeah uh but but i you know we do it much like we do here you know i i give reasons you you people ask me Mar- marcel my roommate who has been on the show a lot um mm-hmm. you know he will present me with things just knowing my background in these characters he will present me with odd matchups just to see me logic my way through of why I choose what I do. And it's not just a matter of, oh, because he's stronger. You know, I do it from that narrative point of view. I mean, aside mm-hmm. from the, the what does the story require? You know, so, but once again, there's that level of analysis and reading that goes into it. Mm-hmm. And, oh, here's an example. This is one that I think is fascinating. This is a reading. I'm going to, I'm going to reference Andrew's show. Um, you will know how far, how long ago you did it. At some point, you guys did an episode on the protagonist on, um, the Mr. Miracle, um, Tom King's Mr. Miracle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, uh, Mm-hmm. Several months back, at least. Yeah, and maybe probably even more than that. I remember yeah. us talking about this. Yeah, and uh, yeah, and I talked to Wayne about this because I thought it was, I I love that episode of your show. You guys went through, and I don't remember who your guest was, but um, it was you, Joe, and uh, whoever your guest was went through, and you did a reading of the um of uh, I'm a big Tom King fan. I'm thinking Wayne, this was probably Todd, Todd Peterson was probably our guest. He's he's a frequent guest. And I think he's been our guest for Tom King discussions. Yeah. I, I believe it. Okay. I believe it was. Um, so you, Todd and, and Joe are discussing, uh, Mr. Miracle, a book that I love, Tom King, an author that I love, Wayne. I know you're a big fan. Katya, I don't know if you have read him, but, but what's, what's amazing is you guys talked at length for a good hour where you analyze this wonderful, beautiful superhero book and you talk about how it's not really about superheroics. Super it is the story of some of a new father dealing with, you know, the trauma of essentially new fatherhood. That's how you guys read it, which makes sense because I believe when you watched it, you know, I mean, you were the newest. I mean, Joe has kids, Todd has kids. Mm-hmm. You had a you had very young yeah, children at the time. Yeah, new kids. <laughs> 
Yeah, you had like, a brand like, new kid. I, no, I think I talked about that when like reading it, reading an issue about childbirth, holding like a like a three month old. Right, right. Like as as I was helping her fall asleep, I, mm-hmm. I think that's like I'm trying to remember the details from the episode, but I remember now that you're talking about like that sequence. Mm-hmm. I'm like, well, that's putting me like into context. Like, yeah, there's like a childbirth issue in that story, and I'm like, I'm holding like I've just been in the hospital in recent Watching memory. Me. Watching this happen, and, and and you talked about you, you talked about um, Scott. Scott is the main character's name, Mister Miracle. You what? You talked about Scott's experience watching his wife give birth, and 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 being able to relate to it. And I'm listening to this, going, "That's magical." I love listening to Andrew because again, you were the newest of the three fathers talking about it. Uh, it. Like listening to you relate to this moment was amazing, wonderful radio. And then I go and I told Wayne this: they're wrong, and they needed a non-father on the show. But they, but it was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> it was so okay. <laughs> because I because I, I, I love being able to see your experience from it, but that's not a, at all what I get from that graphic novel. That graphic novel is about personal trauma and struggle and suicidal thoughts and like dark. Like I have my own reading of it that comes from my mm-hmm. life experience, which is completely separate from yours because I don't have kids. I can't feel that, and that's what made it amazing. Just like hearing I, you explain it was like. Oh my God, that's so beautiful, Andrew. Well, part of the thing that also like both experiences are valid is it's like mm-hmm. I think I think like people I think especially from the outside, but I think even within academia, we get really hung up on the idea of like what is the ultimate meaning of a text, right? right. Even though mm-hmm. that's actually what our field does, because like books and movies and television and games and whatever, like these are tools for thinking with. Mm-hmm. And like how like they're tools, basically. They're not we produce meaning in conversation with these things. Like they're ways for us to understand the world around it. Think of it almost like, you know, a very abstract version of like a telescope, right? We're mm-hmm. using these things to investigate our own feelings, experiences, blah, blah, blah. This is why we go back and reinterpret text. Like mm-hmm. our readings now of Moby Dick are very different than they would have been in like the 1920s. Mm-hmm. And it's not just because like our understanding, it's not like, not because we have deeper historical understanding of Moby Dick, which is like true. There's like some archival stuff that pops um, up and like mm-hmm. we sometimes we know more about like the context in which a text was written or about the author than we did previously. But really the reason why we reinterpret things and also things leave the canon because that does sometimes happen mm-hmm. I've, I've had long conversations with professors who lament the fact that they think henry james is leaving the canon and mm-hmm. i have thoughts about that but bye. Uh, <laughs> personal thought bye uh, no i think that's right actually like but like because henry james is no longer my argument and these scholars who bemoan this at least you know in our conversations agree like Henry James is no longer a useful tool for thinking yeah. about contemporary experience. It's part yeah, of the reason why I'm, yeah, I'm with because, you. Because right it doesn't mean he wasn't important in his own time. It doesn't mean he wasn't important for the like mm-hmm. the historical evolution of like literary realism in the United States. Or or Absolutely. that you can't enjoy reading some Henry James if you want to. Absolutely. Go ahead. Absolutely. Like you're on Amazon. You can buy him right now. And all this stuff, but like Henry James usefulness for a tool for as it as a tool for thinking with is is diminished compared to what it was at a different point in history. That's not a value judgment. Different point in history 15 years ago. Not yeah. not even not even far right, back. Not even that long ago. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, but I think part, but I think like that's the thing it's like about like the like good readings and how, like readings coexisting. It's like if it is a useful tool for you to think with, mm-hmm. I think that's a valid re- reading mm-hmm. in my mind. And, but, and I, I oh, it's like this goes into like the way Mav described his experience with Mr. Miracle. It's like when when Mav says like, oh, 
That's really interesting. You're wrong. What Mav means is like you're wrong for me. That like I can't, yeah, 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 I can't yeah. read it that way because it it, it just yeah. doesn't work for me. And so funny, yeah. And I had much the same experience as Mav did when he talked about this. You know, and and you know, listening to your podcast and hearing hearing you guys, I didn't have that experience with it either. I don't have kids. I've never had that experience. And while I certainly read those parts of the book, yeah. they did not speak to me in the yeah. same way. Right. Uh, and and you guys it, it gets you guys barely you guys talked for an hour and the <laughs> fact that he's suicidal for most of the book was almost an afterthought. Was not right. was not a big part of our discussion. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and he and and the book, I mean, well actually spoilers versus and trigger warning if anybody's going to try to read this book, which you should, because it's uh I mean it's an amazing book. It's really uh, good. And yeah. I, and I think we'll we'll all say that um, I'll read it we say mm-hmm. that. Um it's a book where the main character tries to kill himself on the first page. That's how the book starts. So, so yeah. you know that that it's could be traumatic. Yeah, 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 it could be traumatic, and it's and you guys barely talked about it, which for me was amazing. I love that episode of your show because what's great about it is I like I know I know the reading of Mister Miracle as a study in trauma and personal trauma because that's how I read it. I loved hearing the three of you relate to this in a way that is completely foreign to me. That's what made it interesting. Wayne, you always said you know how much you loved Luke Cage as a kid because you didn't know any real life black people at that yeah, point. So yeah, it, like, it was it was an incredibly important book to me in 1972. It, it just right. it, as cliche and and horrible and black exploitation <laughs> as I know it is now. Mm-hmm. That was my first. Well, that and Good Times, you know, right? Uh, you know, t- TV, you know, the Jeffersons. Those were my first glimpses into a non-white and very specifically urban black setting with all well, of those. Yeah, not, 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 not to use urban in the, the cliche no, urban, form, meaning black. Urban is but, the actual city. We've, we've talked, we haven't said it in a while, but Wayne grew up literally in the middle of nowhere, like yeah. in a one horse town is yeah, where Wayne's yeah, from. Yeah, <laughs> all yeah. but. And, we, and, we, and we had to share the horse. So, you know, yeah. it's, <laughs> so, it's, I mean, it's yeah, so I, I think, but I think, I think that's the power of, I mean, <laughs> two horns of our, of our shows. I mean, I, I specifically mentioned several friends of the, of this show because I think that's what's interesting like Mm -hmm. um protagonist your show Andrew you guys are doing a, you, you guys are a, are a show that looks at essentially you approach a different book every week from the perspective of doing that 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 senior year seminar paper and it's, it's what you do every week which I think is amazing right um, and then you know our show is a bunch of guys hanging around at a bar drinking and talking about you know a bunch of academics are hanging at a bar drinking and talking about whatever the topic is Church of the Geek again friends of ours but a show I enjoy Church of the Geek is very much much um, them going it's two ministers saying okay how can we look at this from a theological bend I love their show I've mm-hmm. been on their show a couple of times um, they know I'm a I mean listen to this show I'm a godless heathen I'm a horrible person right but they, <laughs> <laughs> but, but they like me and I, and I like, like us anyway yeah, yeah. <laughs> Wayne you've been on the show it's it's, it's great yeah. hearing smart people talk about that there was an idea and, and, and listening to shows like that and listening to shows like that that's very definitely mm-hmm. a perspective from which I do not read this stuff. Right. And it's important for us to learn that way. It's absolutely. To, um, so moving in again, I said, I want to do a lot of schoolish stuff on this episode. Um, if we, I disparage Matthew Arnold. I don't like him as a critic. I am and as somebody who's a professional literary critic. Now I'm allowed to make that choice. <laughs> Coffee said you yeah. <laughs> the expert expertise. I can just disparage one one literary critic who's been dead for 140 years. Okay, so <laughs> so so um, well, looking, well, that's your reading of it. Matthew Arnold. 
largely moved on to at least most a more nuanced understanding. Right. But to to look at the Walter Benjamin version where he says the storyteller, he's like the storyteller is dead. And a lot of the meaning is meanings not just produced by the person telling the story anymore. Meanings produced by the reader. Right. Like reading is a contract with the author. And this is the way we almost always approach things on this show. It's absolutely the way Andrew and Joe approach things on on your show. Right. Like like Mm -hmm. what what does this text mean? Well, you know, you're reading it you tell me what it means right yeah. like that's, a, that's <laughs> that, what that was a that was another question that i wanted to ask and i think um Koch has mentioned it like a couple times like getting into the the idea of this but i wrote down four different words and i think it's like okay like two of them are each on one side of of the thing and i wrote down like meaning and tension and i wrote down interpretation and reading yeah and and as much as they're on the opposites i'm actually starting to think that meaning and reading are almost on the same side where it's like it's not about like what was the intention of the author it's about what it means to me and if mm-hmm. i read something as a father that that creates a meaning for me or if you read something not as a father and, and as you know someone who's like experienced that. with trauma or something yeah, no, then mental, that's yeah. gonna be a different like, thing and that's I, your that's you had lots of problems yeah i've had lots of problems dealing with mental health so like that's what i saw i'm like oh yeah. my god this is the book for me and this is part of why in lots of branches of literary study at this point like the Benjaminian approach that Mav just described where it's like we, can, we like that the reader or whatever media you know consumer of whatever media is co-creating the story is co-creating the co-creating mm-hmm. the meaning is like the central this like become I mean I, I would argue at this point like it, like the dominant trend in the in the humanities in general. Yeah. I'm sure that people would argue with that. But like formalism has, people still practice formalism, but I think it's much less common and people often do it in conjunction with this more yeah. modern adaptation mm-hmm. because I think we've all recognized that in a world that is increasingly dominated by media, mm-hmm. it's frankly more, it's a more useful conversation to have mm-hmm. because it's ta- because it's like, Talking about why one individual or a group of individuals creates a text, like there's val- there is value in that. But talking about how people receive those stories, use those stories either in their individual lives or to construct community and all this stuff in, in many ways, not only, I mean, in my subjective opinion, is more interesting, but also I think is infinitely more consequential because yeah, it's like if, we yeah. construct society through storytelling, like if and knowledge, like there is no knowledge without storytelling. I even, and I've, I've, I've had this argument with so many quantitative people that, and I've convinced many of them, like every fact you know about the world is a story you have told yourself. Mm-hmm. I don't care if it's yeah. math, yeah. Yeah. math is a story yeah. describing the world. Yep. Like we are like one of the things that distinguishes us as a species is we tell stories to mm-hmm. trans to transfer knowledge. This how yeah. this, this how we do all the things. And, and if we give all the power to the creators of the narrative, you it's you can't distinguish that from propaganda then. Yeah. People are passive in the construction of culture. Yeah. Right. Not true. Right. Absolutely. Well, and, and also, I mean, aside from you, know, you and I having a different reading of something, I can come to the same book at different points in my life and have a very different reading of it. Yes. I'm a if very I have a kid, person. I'm going to, I'm going to change my mind on the story than Andrew. Yeah. yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. yeah right. Well, and, and just, you know, I, I can think of significant books in my life. Something I read in my mid twenties that was you know, hugely influential on my thinking and my way of seeing the word 
world that just, you know, really clicked for me. And then I would reread it 20 years later. And it was a very different book because I was a very different person. Mm-hmm. You know, one in particular, just it still held a tremendous amount of meaning for me, but it was completely different meaning. And then I've read other stuff that I you know, read in my 20s, like, oh, this was amazing. I go back to it now and go, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> I hate this now. What, this? What, what, what was I thinking? <laughs> yeah. So. Well, and it, like you guys have said so much about like kind of divorcing your your meaning and your reading from intentions of, of the author and everything. But I mm-hmm. like sometimes there really are intentions of the author yeah. and like oh, yeah. being aware of those. And sometimes it's really obvious. Like I'm, I'm going to say like like Zack Snyder, mm-hmm. Superman is an extremely clear Christ allegory, right? Like Zack yes. Snyder portrays yes. Superman as Christ. And I'm like, now originally Superman, I would think of more of as a Moses allegory because mm-hmm. he was created by Jewish guys and it's being in the basket mm-hmm. and all that sort of stuff. But when mm-hmm. Zack Snyder makes Superman, that is, no, that, is Snyder, that is Christ. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, Zack and, Snyder, and, 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 and there have certainly yes. been, yeah. And there's certainly yeah. Superman as a Christ metaphor has um, been there for a long time as well. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. I agree yeah, with yeah, you. Yeah. He, he didn't invent it, but he definitely like, intends it. He yeah. definitely intends it. Well, and I, I've had that conversation with different friends of mine, people who I, I'm going to, move the conversation over to music for a second. Mm-hmm. I I get into performers and, and songwriters and, and I, I read a lot of music biographies and it changes the way I interact with the music. I'm going to use my, my favorite example of David Bowie for that. I have a friend who's a huge fan, has read nothing about Bowie's life. He just listens to the music. He likes the songs. He likes the lyrics, as do I. But I find when I read what was going on in this person's life at this time, what was you know, the things he was reading, the things he was experiencing, there are other meanings to the lyrics that come out of that. Things he certainly intended at the time. So, but both are valid. You know, I still right. can enjoy it just as a song. It's know, a different way terms. of constructing meaning with additional information. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. So right. I, and and, and it's, it's not like that you you know I I would never tell him that he can't construct meaning or enjoy this without knowing these things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and well, his experience of that is certain. Yeah, and but well, yeah, I, I think this gets into a question. I've been kind of I, I might be backtracking on some of the things I said earlier. Although, well, I'm not sure yet. I haven't decided. Uh, <laughs> welcome to being an academic. Well, because yeah. I was talking, I think like I started the episode talking about like, the difference between a reading based on expertise versus. And I, I think what we're talking about, like, and what I've been thinking about is like, what is the difference between a reading based on expertise of like literary critic, blah, 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 you know, Mav knows all the theory, you know, I do historicism, blah, 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 versus reading based in personal experience. And I don't think it's a binary. Like I, I am very, you know, there are academics who feel that they can be objective about a text. I personally feel that that is impossible. There is no way for me to guarantee that my academic I, approach to a text yeah, is not influenced by my personal experience of that. Like, yep. I have written, you know, I wrote my, like one of my, like my undergraduate honors thesis. That is the nerdiest thing I've said in a long time uh, <laughs> about Ender's game. It was mm-hmm. grounded in evidence, argument, theory, all that stuff. Nothing in there is written about my personal experience because I was being an academic. And I think that's part of the difference between an academic interpretation versus a personal interpretation. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is very much grounded in the fact that Ender's game was a very influential book for me when I was mm-hmm. 10 years old. And then when I was revisiting as an adult, realized my favorite novel as a kid was a written by a person I do not agree with (laughs) and then B is a book about child soldiers and I was like wait a second I was 10 years old this entire novel is about child soldiers and how did I not pick up on that and it was because I was made like, ooh, lasers are cool, man. 
Um, I think I think I've got an example. I, I, like I have some notes of of like different examples, and I think I've got an example for you of where like it, I think the interpretation, the reading that someone's going to have is really about like what and and like academically, like this is kind of backed up either way. But depending on what your personal anxiety is, you could read Invasion yeah. of the Body Snatchers a certain yes. way because yeah. I love I love Invasion of the Body Snatchers because. I watched it in a film class in college and we, and, and our teacher, our, our, our professor like couched it in terms of being like the opposite of the day the earth stood still. And he said like day the earth stood still kind of pro communist, right? Invite the outsider <laughs> and they can help make world better. Mm-hmm. And then we watched invasion of the body snatchers and he intended, like he couched it as like, this is anti McCarthyist or is it? And we like, and we talked about it. We we're like, Oh, is it anti-communist or anti-McCarthyist? It doesn't really matter because it's anti-homogeneity, right? Mm-hmm. It's, and, and both of, and that's the fear, right? So if you are in the sixties and you're looking at this and you're anxious about the homogeneity of communism, then maybe you say as an academic, like, well, here's all my evidence showing how the pod people are the communists and how they're going to infiltrate and you got to watch out for your neighbors and all that sort of stuff. And then mm-hmm. you watch it in, the 2000s where there's a lot of hefty criticism against McCarthyism and the enforced homogeneity in an attempt to fight homogeneity Um, and you say oh this is a stunning rebuke of McCarthyism and how they're going to turn everything into a just gross super consistent no free will kind of community and it's like all right but the creators didn't have any intention either way right like it's like yeah, fairly yeah. well documented like they've done a ton of interviews there's a ton of writing on it i know because because joe and i um have recorded an episode on it that hasn't been released yet but like they really like they don't mean it either way but you yeah. can totally read both of them a hundred percent simultaneously mm-hmm. As, example, as someone's fear and anxiety. Yeah. yeah an, an example Mav and I've talked about, I think we've talked about it this on the show in in the Civil War era of, mm-hmm. of Marvel, where, you know, everybody saw Captain America as what they believed in. I had a, a friend who came into the store who was incredibly conservative and Cap was the the conservative fighting against the government <laughs> of Captain America. Where, you know, I see this and it's like, Tony Stark is just the epitome of industrial military complex and putting these people in prison is obviously Guantanamo Bay, you know, and he didn't see that at all. And having that conversation at that time in the store with different people, it just struck me as hysterical how everybody, no matter what your politics were, identified with Captain America. This was before the show came out, before we started doing the show, obviously. So, but I remember Wayne, I remember us going there. We, we would survey people. Yeah. No one, no one was on team Iron Man. And so it was different when the, when the MCU did their version because, right. like, Tony, yeah. because Tony Stark you know, was Robert Downey Jr. and he had a, and there was a, nobody was on team Iron Man yep. in the comics. Everyone was team cap and everyone had a very different idea of what team cap meant. Yep. Um, I know many people weird. who are Iron Man pre-movies. Right, right. Oh, no, no, I mean, but in the Civil War argument on, on that specific series, because everybody that thought, series, oh, oh, but... oh, yeah, 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 yeah. There were people who liked Iron Man. I'm just, we meant in, the, okay. in this series, they, yeah. they really thought, everyone thought that this series was an allegory for, you know, they knew Cap was the good guy and Iron Man was the bad guy in it. 
and the, and it was always an allegory for whatever you happen to believe. People believe mm-hmm. that, which is, I mean, that goes to our, our, our yeah. wrong versus right thing. You know, my example that I used in the blog was Ted Cruz. Mm-hmm. Ted Cruz, and I, I don't think he's, I don't think he's doing a bit. I don't think he's trying to be cute for like Ted Cruz is often saying stuff provocatively to be an asshole to you know as a as a politician and trying to just he's trying to like pick up the Trump voter and I'm just gonna say it you know I'm obviously again you listen to the show you know I'm not a bit I'm not a big Trump fan <laughs> go figure but Trump is cooler than Ted Cruz which is to say not like I want to hang out with him but Trump's a better troll than Ted Cruz is he knows how Trump's very yeah. good at being an internet troll and Ted yeah. I don't think Ted's internet trolling on this one though Ted really fundamentally believes he went out and saw the Avengers movie he saw Infinity War and he believes he's watching a movie about the evil de- Democrats trying to destroy the universe and he explained it in an interview and watching Ted Cruz explain how Thanos represents Democrats is fascinating because he's not making it up he really fundamentally believes this he's a crazy person he's wrong <laughs> I'm okay saying he's wrong on this one because <laughs> I've heard I've heard Anthony Russo talk for more than two seconds and it's very obvious that's not what he intends at all and but you know I guess the author is dead so Ted can have that reading I guess <laughs> but also, like, I think especially like I mean I, I would be interested to hear other people's take on this but like as somebody who looks at history like crap like crowd opinions matter to me like yes, I agree too like what the dominant like not to say that the dominant reading is always correct but like the dominant reading of a particular story let's you know let's stay on like you know Marvel Universe and like Thanos I guess and I don't know all these things uh, <laughs> historically speaking, the dominant reading becomes the only reading. Often, yeah. Oh, yeah. It becomes, it becomes the the dominant reading becomes the one that we we believe we we know from history, which is to yeah. say, like we one, remember yeah. Moby Dick in its time as I. This is one of my favorite historical novels. In case you hadn't figured that out on this episode, <laughs> I'm also uh, a big fan of Moby Dick. It's great. It's a super good read, guys. <laughs> And it's it's mainly okay. This is nothing to do with what I like the substance of my comment, but like I mainly love Moby Dick because there are two kinds of people who enjoy Moby Dick. There are people who enjoy Moby Dick because it's a great adventure story, and they really hate the sociology chapters. But people who don't talk about sociology chapters are all of the weird chapters that are about whale facts. And then yeah. there are my people, who I believe are the correct people. <laughs> the sociology chapters are the best part because they're just sort of like adventure novel, adventure model. Suddenly, I'm going to pontificate on the experience of being a giant squid for ten years. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's, it's also it, it, it's canonically it's, it's canonically Phonebone's favorite book as well. From, from the, from the series. So. There's, there's, let me describe this wave for 20 solid pages. What are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> Favorite thing, and I don't, I, I have, I read about this in somebody else's article, which I do not remember anymore. So, uh, takes with a grain of salt. But, uh, supposedly, Moby Dick also set back the study of whales by <laughs> because he makes kind of like fake footnotes oh, wow. to make it look like, and because it, it's a novel. He has whale facts in there, many of which are true, many of which are not. Um, and many of the ones that are not, he he presents them as if they are based in uh, some kind of evidence. They are, uh, many of them, not. Like, they're not just wrong because of the understanding of the science at the time. There's some of those. There are also ones that are wrong because he made them up for literary effect. But a lot of people, because it was presented as a, like, sort of like the sailor's knowledge of whales, believe these things to be true because also... Melville was a sailor. 
Um, and so, yeah, that's one of my favorite things. Also, like Edgar Allan Poe lied about all of his publication figures. And that was only discovered like 10 years ago. Uh, <laughs> random facts you learn that are really helpful. I want to keep going. I mean, Moby Dick's a good example because of all of literature of you know, people in our world, in our academic world, right? Moby Dick's one of the books that has the most monographs out there. And what a monograph is for people who don't know the term, there are there's a there's a part of academic criticism where people will write a book where the entire purpose of the book is just my interpretation of this one other book, right? And there are you know there's Moby Dick. Was written once, but there must be hundreds of people who have written books that are just my yeah. interpretation of Moby Dick. <laughs> people all, 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 all of which are adding their yeah. footnotes and everything. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, the, Citing yeah, the Bible. This is, and, and this is how we like, how interpretations have a tendency to like, yes, to Wayne's point about like, the dominant reading becomes the only reading, but our readings rewrite history. Yeah. So for example, Moby Dick was not an exceptionally popular novel mm-hmm. when it was published. Everyone at the time, hand, like, you know, critics were like, sort of like, eh, whatever, not his best work. It is not the thing that in his period, Melville was known for. And it's also 2,000 pages long, and he's talking about, you know, a wave for like... It this, is... It's, it's weird. Like, strange novel. It's weird. Like, oh, they need novel. a great American writer. <laughs> and so the thing is, it's like, in his time, it was not a particularly important novel. It's not the thing that at the time people thought Melville was going to be... Rem- if, if they thought Melville was going to be remembered... It is not the thing that they thought he's remembered for. It is probably the only Melville text that they, like most people can name who aren't literary scholars. Mm. And even many who are literary scholars. And like, yeah, the, best part to remember the, other the amount of pop culture references in science fiction to Moby Dick is amazing. At some point, we need to do an episode on my entire theory about how Moby Dick is the beginning of American science fiction, because I totally believe it is. Uh, okay. Star Trek has made references to it. Star, uh, Star Trek Wrath of Khan is like all about Moby Dick. Khan yeah. didn't get it. He doesn't understand the book that he seems to qu- be quoting, but. N- no, well, that's a whole different problem. But like, yeah, well, it, it, it's, in there. It's, it's in but like, yeah, for like Jaws is Moby Dick. Th- there's there's that's a what Jaws is. there's a war comic from early 70s of DC war comic of the character of Captain Storm, who's in the losers, his origin story where he loses a leg and is hunting down a, a Nazi submarine that caused him to lose his leg that I totally plagiarized for a writing assignment in fifth grade and not knowing that it was a take off on Moby Dick when I plagiarized it. <laughs> and I, and I, I have no memory of, of what grade I got or what the teacher said if they thought I was a genius because I was able to metaphorically write a, a Moby Dick story as a war story, not knowing I stole it from a comic. <laughs> <laughs> Great writing happens. Oh, it's just God. Uh, but, like, I think, Do like, your homework, kids. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Don't play dry comic books. I mean, you did it accidentally. So I like, like, uh, but I think, like, but, like, and this is, I mean, I think the fascinating thing about this conversation we're having is, like, the power of readings to rewrite history is kind of, is, 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 mm-hmm. because, like, literally mm-hmm. most people like I've, this is not a question that most people will ever be posed in their life unless you are people like us of like name you know x amount of great american novels but on most of those lists moby dick shows up mm-hmm. because a bunch of people who lived after melville died that wanted a great american novel decided i mean this yeah. is also true like and there are so many like the american canon is filled with more of these novels the ones that have been rewritten as to be important than ones that were historically important in their own time. I am sure this is also true of other national traditions as well, because we mm. decide, like, like we were talking about earlier, it's like we are constantly reevaluating 
what are the important texts for the period in which we live in. We always reread these things through the lens of our present moment, even when we are doing historical reinterpretation. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, there, there's the phrase, the great American songbook, which you know, oddly enough ignores a tremendous amount of blues and jazz and folk music. And, you know, mm-hmm. so written by, by black people yes yeah yeah <laughs> and i i also i really did like you said where you said like historic like we'll rewrite the history of things and and that gets into like the x-men because mm-hmm. it's rewritten as being a civil rights story yeah. and people mm-hmm. treat it like it started in the 60s as a civil rights story and mm-hmm. it's like uh not really guys like no. that really doesn't count <laughs> until the <laughs> 70s at yeah. least and then you've got people who are like and, and this is i mean this is something i heard of on a podcast which i stopped listening to because it was like i don't know if i'm here for like this level of analysis where they're like no being a holocaust survivor is so critical to magneto's identity i'm like that did not no. even matter until like way deep yeah. into his existence it was like yeah his argument was like you can't recast magneto as a black person he has to be a holocaust survivor he, that means he has to be jewish i'm like ah, pretty sure you could get away as yeah. reinterpreting magneto as as a lot of sure. different things yeah. yeah. Anyone who yeah. experienced depression, you're probably yeah. good to go. Yeah, he wasn't Jewish for the first half of his existence. Yeah. More, yeah, yeah. I mean it's it's a throw it's a throwaway line in God loves me. That's yeah. the 80s. That's he's been around twenty something yeah. years. And then it yeah. doesn't matter until the X-Men films. It's a it's a mm-hmm. but I, I do right. wanna I mean before we um we run out, I, I do wanna point out uh um Andrew, your brother Joe, um yeah. co- your co-host, he uh, he reminded us that you know speaking of monographs, um in his book, um he 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 relates a story about um, about Scott Lobdell, who wrote the X-Men for many, many years, tells a story about how I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna read from Joe's book, the... Which, which I think this section is gonna be direct quoting from um, Scott Lobdell. Yes. Lobdell, a writer of the X-Men comic and creator of several mutant characters, shared the following experience. One of the most astounding things that ever happened in my life was at a store signing in Florida at the height of X-Mania, or my wild ride at the time. I was given an adorable 18-year-old handler to get me from from the motel to the diner uh, to the store and such. We were talking at w- at one point and she was saying how much her brother and his friends loved the X-Men and how my writing spoke to them as outsiders who stick together because of their outsider status. As the writer who outed Northstar, the first gay superhero in mainstream comics years before, I assumed her brother and his friends were gay. I was surprised when she explained, no, they were skinheads, specifically white supremacists. What? My first inclination was to explain that her brother and his friends had completely not gotten the ideals of inclusion and tolerance the X-Men stood for. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized I couldn't really have my cake and eat it too. I couldn't say the X-Men is about finding strength and being the other and then get upset because the other didn't fit my definition of what I felt was acceptable otherness. Don't get me wrong. When you flip, when you look at the flip side of the Xavier inclusionary viewpoint, you get Magneto's almost Nazi-esque master race thesis <laughs> to the degree that there, that this girl's brother was not running around and gay bashing or involved in hate crimes. The notion that a subsection of society felt that they needed to come together because what made them, what made them them was threatened or that they were looking to find strength in each other. That strikes me as valid as other as other others gravitating to the X-Men. And I, it, it's it's such a weird thing hearing Labdell, who, I, you know, um, as a writer reflecting on his own work, saying that because it, it's almost sort of like, like I can see how he might almost get canceled for even saying it. Right. <laughs> right? <laughs> right. Like, like, right. like that's, a, that's some dicey territory saying, yeah, yeah it's OK, read it how you yeah. want. 
but, but like I get his point and I and I think he's I think he was being he was trying to be very careful saying no no yes. I deplore these people but yes. I, I have to understand them and that's kind of where I was getting like I think Cruz is less vile one you know I found somebody more vile than than Ted Cruz literal skinheads um <laughs> I don't like Ted Cruz um but, but like you don't say yeah I guess I, I I mean like I think that matters and I think that you know to the extent that literature matters we need to sort of recognize the power in multiple interpretations. Um, it, you know, like I can I can point to to the there was an idea that I podcast right and where where the when, you know her TK's interpretation of Loki and because I like her and I like what she stands for even though I didn't enjoy the episode I can enjoy her reading of it I can enjoy Andrew I can enjoy your because I'm not inherently opposed to the idea of fatherhood right <laughs> it's like oh fatherhood's evil so therefore so when when you have something that's like an awful reading of something it becomes harder but I do think that there is usefulness in sort of understanding how the people got there. Mm-hmm. People got there, but I think also like, and this is separate from like whether it's based on evidence, one of my criteria for what makes a good or a bad interpretation is if it's an interpretation that does harm. Because I had this yeah. argument not too long ago about someone that was basically doing a reading of a text that uh, we always joke on the show that eugenics is bad. They were doing a reading of a text that basically said like this was an argument in favor of eugenics and they were specifically doing it in a way that like wasn't saying this text is an argument in favor of eugenics and eugenics bad. Mm-hmm. They were just basically going to like, oh, and this shows that there are aspects of eugenics that are redeemable. And it's like, no, 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 no. Right. That's bad reading because you are using a you are using a text, however well grounded in evidence, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Your reading See, is you are using then. a reading to hurt people. I have yes. a question then. Is it a bad reading or is it a good reading and just what you want to do deplorable? Like you can be a horrible person. You can use if we're saying you could interpret things, if we're saying the meaning is created by both the author and the reader, then sure, you have it's not the it's not that reading is bad, it's that you are bad. You are a bad person who believes in eugenics. That's like you're, you're taking advantage of it for a bad purpose. Yes. I think, well, I think if it's a personal reading, well, I think that's the right take. I think with the, and, if, and this was in an act, so this was in my my experience was in an academic context. I think when okay, you're okay. in an academic context, you're doing as a professional, you're those pro- are yeah, the same you're, thing. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Speaking, yeah. Because we like, I mean, we, t- we talked a few times about like what it means to be an expert and what even, which also goes along with that, what it means to be an authority. And it's like, you are making an authoritative claim. Mm-hmm. You are using that authority to promote a harmful narrative. Mm-hmm. You're using your powers for evil with great yes. power comes great responsibility. I think that means that both, and I think in that context, it's both you are you are you are being a harmful person in that moment, and also your reading is bad because it is causing harm. Like which I read like, and that is a subjective standard that has nothing to do with whether or not the argument is based on evidence. Although I would argue that any argument that leads to eugenics is probably based on shitty evidence anyway, because <laughs> hello. <laughs> yeah, um, I've got I, I think this might be the thing to like wrap up on. I got one last example. And this mm-hmm. is one that people might be familiar of, or you could find a clip of it online. I'm sure Parks and Rec had a sequence that involved this, where there was a debate about whether Twilight was problematic because it was overtly Christian or problematic because it wasn't Christian. And, and <laughs> they don't go into it much. They just have like two extremists on opposite sides where they're arguing about it. 
they're like, no, this book is unacceptable because it has all these things that are not acceptable by conservative Christianity. There's quivering. There's vampires. There's intense stares. This is not okay from a conservative Christian standpoint. And then someone else is saying like, no, the problem is that it has overtly Christian themes in this story about morality. And and I find this amazing because neither of those are my problem with Twilight. But yes, I I see the I see the argument. I'm not as you know. And they're just it's just for a comedic gag about like this is how people argue about stuff when they yeah, feel yeah. intensely about them and they're going to say because it's something that they hate. No, you're wrong about why I hate this. Yeah. And I don't think that's a constructive way to use multiple <laughs> readings. I just wanted to throw that out there. I think what we've talked about for most of the episode is the constructive way to use multiple readings. Yeah. I, 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 just, solid, I would so find that fascinating. Me too. And like, you know, like, so constructive in that conversation. I mean, I, yeah, I keep going back to like where the line is between like an academic, like what's valid academically and what's valid on a personal level. As uh, if I, okay, if I was an, if I was a historian looking back on the impact of Twilight, that dichotomy, even in a facetious like context, would be fascinating and yeah. massively instructive. Yeah, and I want to, and I, and I want to. I mean, both Hannah and Monica know that text. I mean, we, we talked about it a couple episodes ago. They both know this text way better than than any of us do. Um, one of them likes it, and one does not. Go listen to our back catalog and find out which is which. Um, <laughs> but, but, um, but, um, but that said, I, I mean, I, I, I think. Twilight is problematic because the you know the climactic scene is when one of the guys decides he wants to fuck a baby. That's how it ends. That's how that's the point of Twilight, <laughs> and, and it really is. And and that's that's my reading of it. But it's also just the plot of Twilight. I it's it's so weird to me that they that they looked at just the extremes. But I but but maybe that's where maybe that's where a lot of this comes from, right? Like the if we think about what readings are, and, I, and I, here's where I want to end. Readings often are the most common reading on the internet I think hot take here's my hot take and yeah. you know whenever whenever a new movie comes out I've got to be the first to publish uh, on my on YouTube my hot take on on Black Widow on on G.I. Joe Snake Eyes which came out this um, this week <laughs> and it's ruining the box office game um, but, but like but like when, when people like hot takes are their readings and I don't know that they're all good but that's what they really are it's somebody saying here's my take on on this film on this book and to look at just the extremes I think that's that's what we do it's what like internet criticism sort of devolved into either you are with us or against it you know this is either the greatest movie or the worst movie of all time because of these reasons and if you if you don't agree with me you're an idiot like I think that's what a lot of internet criticism is as opposed to the part that I like I said is fun for me I like hearing other people's views of stuff even when I don't agree with it because that's how that's how knowledge is created Mm -hmm. Those, those extremes can get both intolerant and intolerable and yes. when you're somewhere yeah. in the middle that's like the good yeah. academic juicy stuff where you can have extremes and opposites but you can tolerate them mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. they are to- like takes that can be tolerated <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they, yeah they, 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 they can always sure, well, sure. And, and, and we just run into this all the time I think you know, part of the problem is people have their reading of it and simply can't comprehend that there is any other reading of it right you know, mm-hmm. the, the, there's that inability to ever see someone else's point of view and you, and that's problematic no matter what you're talking about mm-hmm. and I think and I think a lot of those hot takes you're talking about and the internet 
yelling at each other is exactly that. That people are yelling at each other because they are their point of view is not being validated. How dare you see something differently than I do? You like the Snyder Cut? How dare you? You yeah. hate the Snyder Cut? How dare you? Yeah. Yeah. Just yeah exactly. My opinion, but also, I have no reason for why my reading is valid. Right. And refuse to give one. Yeah. Or even if they do, I mean, I think some, yeah. I think some people I think some people do give reasons and we'll even well considered ones. And then, but like the idea that like if you don't if you don't agree with my reading, something is fundamentally wrong with mm. you. That's a problem for me. That's where you get yeah. back to to bring it all the way back to the beginning. That's where you get the intolerant blackface take on Hundred and One Dalmatians. Like yeah. these dogs are getting covered in soot. That's blackface. I know blackface is intolerable. Therefore, this is all the way out. Or you can talk to Matt. And you can get it on a scale. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I gave it a two, two out of ten. Yeah. <laughs> so is it, is it kind of blackfacey? Yes. It's kind of blackface adjacent. Sure. <laughs> but is it the same as problematic blackface? No. Not really the same thing. It's like it's like there's nuance to life. What? There should be podcasts that talk about this. Um, so we've resolved well, that, nothing. That's your reading of it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Matt, excuse me. I want to be black and white and only right and wrong. And that's it. Well, well see, 101 Dalmatians were black and white. And then mm-hmm. they, they ruined hey, it. Full circle. <laughs> so we've solved. Uh, yeah, we've yeah, solved <laughs> uh anyway yeah i i think it's an interesting thing i think um like when andrew gave it to me it's like oh, there's there, how have we not just talked about this very idea for an hour before so i'm so thank you yeah. <laughs> thank you for bringing it yeah, you could have used, you used this on back. your show you've got two of them <laughs> <laughs> yeah thanks for coming back andrew yeah oh thank you for for having me on yeah. yeah. So you do, you know, where, well, I was going to say one of your shows is on hiatus, but it doesn't matter. There's like 300 episodes. So um, yeah, there's, <laughs> there's available content for both yes. the protagonist podcast and for Disney animation minute yes. essentials. Yes. And, and well, so, you know, we, yeah, where can people find the two shows? Uh, just standard podcast stuff, but we are also part of the dueling genre network. So if you look up dueling genre, you should be able to track us down as well as um, I'll just plug, you know, a couple dozen other shows that you could mm-hmm. listen to. Um, um, yeah. I've actually been really enjoying um, one of the shows franchiseography has been going through the X-Men films one at a time mm-hmm. and talking about things. I think they've actually very delicately threaded some dicey needles about production <laughs> and directors and stuff. Um, so I recommend that one for, for some, you know, not too intense, but, but reasonable discussion of the X-Men franchise. Uh, mm-hmm. Joe was on to talk about X-Men first class recently. So that was a lot of fun. And for those, you know, for those who've not heard, well, just quickly, Disney Animation Minute Essentials is mm-hmm. I did it right. Oh, my God. Um, nailed it. <laughs> um, and uh, it's um, they, Kestra and, and Andrew go through a, a different Disney movie one minute at a time. Um, as I said in the, in the blog, it is a Herculean task that um, I just can't I, I cannot imagine doing at all. Partic- I mean, I've heard other people, other people, who, this version of this basic thing for other shows as well. Um, not that it, nothing against you, even Andrew. But the amount of the attention to detail that your wife does, Kester's amazing. It's, <laughs> like it's only deepening. Yeah, she, she is doing. She has done more research for 101 Dalmatians than either of the of the other ones. She's got a whole bibliography that she'll publish by the end of it. 
Yeah, it's astounding too. So the the, the concept the of the show that we need in the world, right? I, like, I think you guys might be intimidated by her her bibliography. I, yeah. I am, I am. I is, their show is they go. I mean, you go through one minute at a time, and let, let's talk for half an hour to an hour about mm-hmm. every minute of this film. So, like, they did Little Mermaid. Um, I, I I was on several episodes of their Little Mermaid um theory. Hannah was on several episodes, mm-hmm. and um, they they went through Little Mermaid one minute. At a time, you know, and each one. So, so the film's ninety minutes long. So there's ninety episodes, and each one's half an hour. So literally, there's you know a good forty five more hours worth of content of them talking about this ninety minute movie. <laughs> it's fascinating. It is and, we, and it is, we probably worked on that longer than some of the performers worked on that. The voice yes. actors probably didn't have to spend as probably many hours. Any, yeah. More than any published scholar on that film. Yeah, and it's it is it is fascinating to listen to, and you guys also did um, Snow White, and now mm-hmm. you're doing um, Coming Soon. Andrew Wine Dalmatians, yeah. So, um, which, which but, I'm actually way more excited about than I initially was. Like having watched it a couple times and like learning the history, I'm like, okay, actually, like I'm I'm super into this. Also, guys, if you haven't watched it, like watch Hundred One Dalmatians and think of it like Taken, because it's basically Taken with dogs. It is <laughs> nice, nice. <laughs> nice. See, That's that great. Of, and then your other show protagonist. Uh, <laughs> Protagonist is, um, you know, one great story. Uh, how's, how's your brother? One great story. Uh, every every week, it's a great character and a great story. Uh-huh. Um, so one piece of fiction every week, and that's a that's a that's a um, that's basically a book report, an intense book report from and close reading based on one character of a, of a, of a novel. Well, not just a novel, a novel, a television a show, t- a TV movie. show, movie, yeah. or or comic book, and yeah. that is three hundred and some odd episodes. I think we're over three hundred and fifty episodes. We're coming close to four hundred, and Joe really needs to get a lot of credit for that because it has been consistent week to week. He has been consuming a lot of media for <laughs> six years yeah. um, at this point. Well, seven years really at this point to, to keep that going. And um, it's a lot of stuff, guys. I don't like... <laughs> I don't know and, if he's really tracking it on his CV, but he should. Yeah. Um, and of course, that's also, yeah, for people who enjoy who enjoy our box office game, that's, you guys are where we stole it from. So, which is... I don't think we're going to end up with a box office games here, but maybe next year. Yeah. Well, well um, we've got ours going. And, um, and it's uh, smooth sailing, right? It's it's going perfectly. Um, it's going pretty... It's going, it's, it's going interestingly. I mean... Better than last year. Yeah, we've got a, we got a good we got a good uh, a good game going now because you know like there things are opening up. So I haven't um, calculated this week with um, again Snake Eyes has been at it. So, but anyway, um, thanks again for doing this and thank you for the thank topic. You. So yeah, so everybody should check out all of or both of them, all of really Andrew's on 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 podcast a lot. You should check check out the things he mentioned. Uh, Katya, what about you? You can hear. I increasingly don't believe in the internet, so it's kind of you know you, you host the podcast, so we're gonna kind of need you to believe in internets. Internets are important. <laughs> I mean, I will believe in the magical recording box insofar as it is helpful. Uh, uh, Wayne here mostly. Yeah, I hate you. I feel like the pandemic has like burnt me out on the internet. I didn't realize that that was possible. I think it's happened. I hate you guys so very, very much. <laughs> I, show I show up for this. I show up for you, Matt. I know, I know. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook, all of the places, always at Chris Maverick. You can follow the show, all those same places, at Vox Podcast. You can follow the show's blog at 
www.voxpopcast.com where you can find out what we're talking about next. We have a bunch of really cool shows coming up. We got King Arthur. We got um, um, narratology and video games. We've got a lot of interesting stuff coming up. So check out our blog. You can leave us comments. You can give us your thoughts. We can address them on the show like we did today. Um, if you enjoy the show, and we certainly hope you do, please subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher or Spotify or where the hell else you get podcasts from. And do us a favor. Leave us a five-star review. Um, that helps other people find the show, especially if you leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And don't just leave us a rating, but if you write a little something-something that tweaks the algorithms, makes us more popular, gives me something fun to read and engaging and you know, and then we can do a reading of it on the show. We can read it. And we can. What do they really mean by this? Do they really like us? Or are they just are they just trying to shut me up because I keep asking? No, no we need we need to do that. We need to do <laughs> dramatic interpretations of of iTunes reviews. That needs to happen. That's part of that needs to happen. <laughs> no, like no, anniversary no. bullshit. <laughs> No, this stays. Um, anyway. Oh, <laughs> uh, anyway, I would like to thank Maximilian of Thoughtform Music for our epic theme song, building ever so more epically and playing this out. I'd like to thank you at home for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.